This is an ABC podcast. Jason DeRosso back with you for another week of conversations with the makers of screen stories, images and sounds. The Screen Show is the apt title of this program, brought to you, of course, by the audio wonderland that is Radio National at Australia's public broadcaster, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. How is this for a lush mood to get us into the show? It's a cover of Billy Idol's Eyes Without a Face, of course by Angel Olsen, and it's quite noticeable how different the soundtracks of the two films I'm discussing today are. Uh, one feels like your ears are being caressed by velvet gloves as you maybe sniff an expensive perfume on your wrist, and the other is a soundscape of groans and metallic percussion that puts you inside the mind of an unhinged man. And you're going to meet the directors of both movies today. One of them is releasing on the streaming platform Amazon Prime and the other is in cinemas in the non-lockdown states. But we're going to start with the streaming title first, a film that deals with that cinematic sweet spot of looking. It's called The Voyeurs and it's as preposterous a plot about four beautiful young people as you're likely to find. And I mean that in a good way. I think The Voyeurs knows it's close to being a little bit too silly, but it's also a sumptuous erotic thriller, a film about what it feels like to be young that then takes a dark turn and becomes an experience of what misplaced obsession feels like. A couple move in together to a Montreal loft and they start spying on another couple a male photographer and his model wife who like to make love with the curtains open in the building just across the way. The thing about all these characters, by the way, is that they're in the prime of their lives. They have the world at their feet. Sydney Sweeney, Justice Smith, Ben Hardy and the Australian Natasha Liu Bordizzo. Their faces are smooth, their bodies are toned, their flesh springy like firm jelly. And you do feel like writer-director Michael Mohan has just a touch of the sadist about him as he carefully plots their undoing. Desire leads them all, well, the characters they're playing, into a dark place and damnation. There's more than just a touch of Hitchcock at his most pessimistic here. Think the twistedness of Vertigo with the dirty laundry voyeurism of Rear Window and It's all staged with beautiful costumes in the Canadian winter and a playfulness too, including a match cut that happens more than once where a close-up of an eyeball segues to a knife plunging through a soft-boiled egg. Sex and castration, pleasure and pain go hand in hand in this tale of manipulation and murder where the it girl of the moment, Handmaid's Tale and the White Lotus star Sydney Sweeney, is at the centre playing an optometrist who's betrayed by her desire to look and her inability to understand what she's seen. Now, this film might not be for everyone, but this kind of glossy, slightly silly erotic noir is really right up my alley, a cross between, I think, Eyes Wide Shut and a teen slasher. 
At two hours long, it does sometimes risk overstaying its welcome, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. And if you are getting a little overwhelmed by the convoluted plot, there's always something to look at in frame, a nice winter jacket, an occasional armchair. Coming up, writer-director Michael Mohan. First, here's a clip. What's going on with our friendly next-door neighbours? <laughs> really? This is going to be a thing? Look, they're just like us. <laughs> They're nothing like us. They're way cooler. Yeah. Hey, stop being so obvious. Oh, okay. Secret Ooh. time. <laughs> How do we become their friends? You want to become BFFs with the neighbors we now seem to be stalking. Yeah, why not? But that sake he's drinking is top shelf. He could pour me some and I could pretend to know the difference. And then she could show you all the cute boutiques to shop at in the neighborhood. Yeah, because all girls do a shop. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll learn about the boutiques and shit. <laughs> <laughs> what are their names? She's definitely a Margo. Oh, yeah, of course. She's clearly a Margo. And that's Brent. <laughs> well, maybe Brent could also tell me how to sculpt my body here. Caught a glimpse of his pubes yesterday. They were exquisitely manscaped. Michael Mohan, it's a pleasure to have you on the screen show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me about this film and its inspirations. I've read that, you know, it's kind of harking back to 90s erotic thrillers, which I guess is a good way to describe it. But it's also clearly, you know, Rear Window is playing in here really strongly. Um, and it's a kind of, it's got an element of the 90s teen slasher about it. Um, like I know what you did last summer and stuff. I mean, all those influence subs, I'm sure, are coming to bed. You tell me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, erotic thriller, like really with this film, I want to, reintroduce the erotic thriller to a modern audience, you know? And and when you say erotic thriller, that might mean different things to different people. Like you might think of body heat or wild things, which are kind of like sweaty neo-noirs, or you might think of, you know, the blank from hell movies, like Hand That Rocks the Cradle, right? But this film is what I call a steamy moral dilemma film in the vein of Indecent Proposal or Unfaithful where the characters are faced with a series of decisions that have only problematic answers. And the audience is going to actively disagree on what the main character should or should not do. Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit that nail on the head, I think, because this is one of those films where it begins with a kind of premise that almost anyone can imagine themselves being in, which is seeing these neighbours across the way uh, doing all sorts of things, there are no curtains and all of that. And so do you watch or do you not watch? That's the first thing. But then they become implicated in the life of this couple and they're seeing things that, you know, one one member of the couple is not seeing and do they, you know, all of that. But also there's something about maybe the internet that's not explicit in the film, but I think it's running through it, a kind of sensibility about what we watch and who's watching us while we watch. Well, 100%. Yeah. My hope is that, you know, I think we've all dealt with grass is greener syndrome, right? But that's never been more intense than right now, where we have this app that are, is on our phone that allows us to stalk people we may or may not know to get this partially true glimpse into their lives, right? And even though we know that what we're seeing has been filtered and facetuned to present a reality that is not at all attainable, we sometimes feel dissatisfied in our own lives by comparison. And so what I hope is thrilling about this movie is that it's an allegory. And so you can choose to read into it, but if you decide not to read into it, it's hopefully still a fun ride. But 
Two, I think, you know, our characters, they break through that window. You know, they go to the other side. They break into the other couple's house and drink all their booze at their Halloween party. And what they see is that, you know, appearances can be deceiving. And what lies beyond this pristine, artistic, successful couple, the image of that couple is something far, far more broken and sad. What I love, though, so much about this film and your direction of it, though, is the sense of mood. And I want to talk a lot about this because, first of all, this is shot in Montreal, right? And so many films are shot in Montreal pretending to be New York or whatever. I love the fact that this is in Montreal. God damn it. It's such a wonderful city for this story. And there's something odd about the fact that these are Anglophone couples and there's this touch of French around them which just displaces everything. It's like you're watching a a world you know, but you don't quite. Tell me about that. It was written originally for downtown Los Angeles. We needed to find a soundstage large enough to build what is a giant set. And when we looked in all of North America, the only place that we could find a big enough soundstage was Montreal. And when when we went and we were scouting, I had never been to Montreal before. And suddenly, just the culture of this city and the the, the support of the arts that's there, the, the multiculturalism, it's so specific and so beautiful that I was like, I let's just set it, let's just move the story here. Let's just transpose it here. It'll be A, I'll get, I don't have to hide anything. I'll be able to like actually just capture it for what it is. And B, it just adds this extra layer of specificity to the story. Um, that I could never have dreamed of. And I think part of my approach as a director with things is this happens when you cast actors too and they start to bring their own natural sensibilities to the role is is you sort of just try to stay out of the way and let the film and the circumstances surrounding making the film, let those dictate what it wants to be. And what hopefully what you find is that it's even better than the movie that you had in your head. And so um, I loved shooting in Montreal. I love the people there. I love the passion of those people. And um, and I just think it makes for a much, just a more interesting film. It does. So did you end up shooting it on a soundstage? So it's a mix of both. So um, we had to, so this was the, this was the primary challenge of the film is that we had to find a location that we could base that for all the exterior scenes of them walking in and out of the building and things like that. We had to find that location in like a practical location that actually existed. We had to get permission from not only the building owners, but every single person who was facing the courtyard that we were primarily filming in. Because basically, then just let, let me just, I'll paint a picture for the for the listener. Essentially, you've got a, a, a converted warehouse, an open space kind of thing where this new couple have moved into, and they're looking out onto what's a much more modern block, a kind of brutalist, modernist building, it seems like, where this other couple, a photographer and his model girlfriend, uh, or wife, actually, live. What we see of the exterior of the buildings, yeah, it looks practical. It looks like they're, I wouldn't have picked that for being on a soundstage. And, and so you're confirming they weren't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, we, we we had to build the entirety of the ninth floor of both of these buildings side by side. Um, so picture the movie Rear Window. But then we would stitch certain shots together where... You know, sometimes the camera will be pointed down at the courtyard and, the, and that was real. And then the camera would pan up to our set and then we'd have to invisibly stitch it. And 
one side of our soundstage was this giant map painting of the Montreal skyline that we would then digitally enhance with birds and steam to make it seem more realistic. And so that was the enormous challenge of the locations department and our production designer, Adam Reamer, was trying to make this set feel real. Like you actually believed that you were at on the ninth story, um, coupled with the visual effects. Well, and also what I like about it is that I'm quite a lot older than these characters now, but I remember this time of life when you kind of healthy and you've got all these possibilities open to you and and you've just been catapulted out of your course at uni or wherever it is and you in the case of Pippa Sydney Sweeney's character she's a little bit like she's been too much of a good girl and uh oh you know that leads her character perhaps for a comeuppance because she wants to experience life on the wild side or have a bit of excitement Anyway, I won't go into that now, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a kind of sheen to this film that I really like that captures in a stylized way what it's like to have a bit of money to be in your late 20s and kind of have the world at your feet. And it's a lovely sheen because there's a darkness to it as well and it gets all upturned. But tell me about creating that sheen because I think you do it through the soundtrack, you do it through the costumes, everyone's wearing beautiful clothes it's winter. It all looks like some cafe that's just been newly renovated. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for me, these, the, the, one of the best parts of this genre is that it's pure escapism. And so for me to work with um, my costume designer, Romy, for instance, and go, let's have, what, what is the funnest decision we could make here for these characters? Uh, Let's try to like, even though we shot this movie in 2019 now, um, but we were trying to be as fashion forward as we could. And, you know, with the two lofts too, it's like, we just wanted them to define the characters. We wanted the loft that Pippa and Thomas live in to feel a little bit more bohemian, but still, you know, a little, a little aspirational. And then the apartment across the way that Seb and Julia live in to be, uh, you know, a bit more upscale, but also kind of cold and and not really inviting. And so, yeah, that was really that was really the that was really where it all came from. You know, I will say, I think my cinematographer Elijah, uh, who was actually Elijah Christian, who was actually my roommate in college. It was an enormous challenge for him to lighting both of these sets simultaneously to make them feel real and to give it that that edge that I think you're talking about because we had to light the sides of the building as if it was day and then we had to flood the interior with light so that you could actually like see what was going on in there. How many lights did you need? How, did you have like seven trucks or something full of equipment? It was just massive and and we, you know, we were on this giant, you know, it was on a giant soundstage and it was just a, a much larger, for a film that's four actors in two rooms, it was a giant undertaking. Yeah. What are those lights called that, that project daylight, the HMIs, right? Are they still called that? Uh-huh. So, so like, yeah, what, I think so. I think so. I'm yeah. not sure exactly what lights. I know that we were, we wanted to use LEDs, but we couldn't afford them. So we had to use some old school techniques yeah yeah but um it was a real challenge yeah and you also have the reflections of all the windows which were practical so you have to make sure that you don't see any of the lights and the reflections of the windows which was also challenging yeah there's good coat game in this and sweater game i think that's what the kids call it but coat game when um, natasha louis bodizzo the really great australian actor italian chinese australian uh, who plays the model wife of this sinister photographer i can call him sinister i don't think it's a spoiler but she wears a great two-tone jacket at one point and um, i think pippa's wearing um 
this kind of check jacket. And you've got the guys wearing just, you know, they do this thing which I never do, which is they're just wearing jumpers across just their naked, ripped torsos. I'm like, wear a T-shirt under that. But it's all part of this lushness. I have to say, coats are the one of the most challenging things as a director because when you have a character enter a room and then have to take off their jacket taking off your jacket doesn't happen quickly and you need them so we were you need it to happen quickly and so we were always trying to figure out okay in this cut could she have taken off her jacket is she now holding it like and every scene luckily i had some experience working in toronto on a show that was very jacket heavy and so i i'd fallen down the rabbit hole of of just how how you can get lost in terms of like on the day realizing oh my god this character needs to take off their jacket and it's destroying my scene just <laughs> so, but it's 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 slowing down the blocking it's like we can we did yeah i mean because this exactly. is this is a wintry montreal by the way which is part of its charm as well well that was the thing too i'm glad i didn't try to set it in la because literally we we shot all of our exteriors first in november hoping that we would avoid snow and it snowed on the third day of production we got a snowstorm and so we just had to figure out, we suddenly had to completely revamp our entire schedule because a bunch of scenes we shot didn't have snow. Now we were covered in snow. And so we had to figure out like, okay, on which day of our story did it snow? And then can that add some kind of texture to the story in some way, which it does. It really does. It actually worked out. But then as we were shooting the rest of the movie, we either had to truck in snow or steam it away or do a little bit of both or replace or add snow to some of the earlier scenes we shot digitally. It was incredibly complicated for something that nobody would ever like notice. But I think that the night that it snows in the movie, like things change, things change for the characters, things get colder for them. And, uh, and it just was one of those magic things that it was a big magic headache that somehow worked out creatively. You're listening to The Screen Show. My name's Jason DeRosso, and I'm speaking to the writer-director of a new erotic thriller called The Voyeurs. His name is Michael Mohan. Michael, Sydney Sweeney is really great as Pippa, who is this, I think she's, I guess, the protagonist of the film, really. And what I like about her, this is a film that uses eyes as a metaphor and she works in an optometrist uh, sort of studio as an assistant. And the film begins with all these close-ups of eyes, which of course are beautiful, but the closer you get when you use macro lenses, the more um, monstrous an eye looks. It almost looks like a mouth. There's a moment where, again, this is a highly erotic film. So there are lots of close-ups on, well, not lots, but there are key close-ups on mouths and eyes. And her eyes are great because they're kind of slightly sleepy. I like her eyes for this film. But tell me about casting her and what was right about her. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, you know, I had worked with Sydney a few years ago, um, many years ago, on a television show called Everything Sucks. And, you know, back then I realized I'd only really scratched the surface of what what she was capable of as an actor. And I also just loved working with her. She's just like a really great, cool person to be around. You know, through the years, I've admired her performances and, you know, her arc on Handmaid's Tale and Euphoria and even showing up in Quentin Tarantino's movie. You know, so I'm so like proud when I saw her in that. It was so, so awesome. And, um, and so when I was casting this, I had a greenlit movie. I had a studio that was completely supportive of me casting, you know, whoever I thought was right. And they were okay with me sort of taking, 
you know, taking someone who hadn't been the lead of a studio movie and especially someone of Sydney's talent. And so as a, a fan, I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. Like this is the perfect leading role for her because it'll show this really down to earth side of her that she hasn't really shown in some of her other work yet. And the arc of this character goes to darker and darker and darker places. And I just knew she had the chops to be able to do that. But as her friend, you know, I was a little scared to ask her because this movie does have scenes of intimacy and that's a very personal decision. And I didn't want our prior working relationship to sort of have any have any effect on on what's ultimately a very personal decision. Tell me about that. Yeah, how did she, because it, it's a film where everyone has to get naked really. They don't have to, but they chose to. Yeah. Well, the, um, oh, okay. Well, yeah. Tell me about how that is. That a negotiation? What happens? I mean, were you prepared for one of them to say no? That's not happening. Oh, absolutely. If if any of them had decided not to get naked, we would never have done. We would have never filmed them. Um, no. I mean, when I approached each of the actors, I sent them a little book with like sort of my, you know, my a little director's book that's like, here's why I love this genre. Here's why I really want to bring it back with this story. Here's what the story means to me. And then I had this little section that was like, it was a picture of, of the band Salt and Peppa. And then in letters on the top said, let's talk about sex. And basically me saying like, this is a movie with, you know, frank depictions of sexuality. And if this makes you uncomfortable, this might not be the movie for you, but just know we'll be working with an intimacy coordinator. We actually brought the intimacy coordinator on from the season one of Euphoria, who Sydney had worked with before. Um, but we're going to work with an intimacy coordinator to make sure that boundaries are set and met on the day. And so that's exactly what we did. What What does an intimacy coordinator do exactly? And and let's talk gritty if we can. I mean, we're talking about there's certain covering things that happen on intimate parts of the body. Is that right? Well, it starts in prep. It starts way early. And so basically I created this. And with Amanda, like I really wanted to like set a new bar in terms of in terms of setting a new standard, really, in terms of how how people work with actors, especially on a movie like this that is so sexually frank. And so what I did was I created a book for each actor specifically that went into detail on like, here's the scene, here's why the scene is important to the movie, which they already knew at that point. And here's, here's what I want the approach to nudity to be in this scene. If you are comfortable with it and having it be completely malleable, so that the actor can then see sort of what my intentions are. And then we can work together to find a version of the scene that they're totally comfortable with. That's exactly, that's exactly what we did. And then, so then she, Amanda's able to sit down with the actors privately. I'm not even there. So the power dynamic that normally exists between a director and an actor is totally diffused, which I love because now I don't have to worry about the actor saying yes to something they might be uncomfortable with. Um, and it gives them a chance to talk about things in a way that, you know, they can talk about their insecurities. They can talk about what parts of their body they don't want filmed. It's it's interesting because this is a film where I was watching it with, at a certain point I was thinking, this is this era. So we're in a different era in a sense. And I know what goes on in terms of contracts and what you can see and can't see. Anyway, and there's a moment where I think there is there is more nudity with, say, Sidney Sweeney's character that I wasn't sure was going to arrive because I was thinking in myself, wow, okay, so her contract must be... And then we get that nudity. But it's also a film that needs to... You're still needing to not show... I mean, how does this work in terms of the, the studio and the rating you want? You're not showing pubic hair, to be frank, and obviously no genitals so and no men, so no no male genitalia, you know, God... There is, there is, there, ah, is, there, is. There, there, 
There are two penises in this movie, and I'm very proud of that. I am ah, very okay. proud of the fact. Now, that why am I not now, remembering? No, that. you have to. You have to. You have to pause it. You have to pause it. Okay. Right? You have to well, go. Yeah. T- tell me about that because but, that's a whole minefield, isn't it? Like the the male penis. Yeah. My goodness, we can't see that. Yeah, it is. It is, but it's also like it's like the world needs that. Like it's been like we. <laughs> my wife and I watched the the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy, and we were just like, when are they going to show this guy's penis? And they never did. And they should have. It would have been a better movie. No offense to those filmmakers. Um, but I think it's just like, okay, so you asked a few questions in there. Uh, to take a step back, everything for me came from theme, which if I want to make the audience feel like voyeurs, at a certain point in the movie, I want to go there. Uh, or at least that's my hope. My hope is that I, I'm in a situation where the actors want to go there. Uh, and, and so you as the audience member are looking at something that you feel like, this is what I've been wanting to see this whole movie. Like biologically, I want to be watching, but my the circumstances under which this is happening are so incredibly messed up that I don't know if I should be watching. And that that suddenly turns the audience, it just really hammers home this theme. That said, if the actors, regardless of contracts, because contracts don't matter, if an actor showed up on the day and they were like, Mike, I'm not feeling this, we would have shot it differently and we'd have planned to do so. Mm. No, look, it's it's fascinating. And I think you've described there my, my Catholic schooling perfectly, biologically wired one way. And um, you have a whole lot of other settings telling you no. No, no, it's, it's, I think it's a wonderfully stylish film. There's an early tracking shot really low on the sidewalk as Pippa is strolling out top of the world, late 20s, world at her feet sort of thing. The camera's literally at her feet. Things like that are just great. And then the film starts on a lovely tracking crane through a lingerie boutique window you seem to be a filmmaker who loves to move the camera and has been influenced by Hitchcock and the others you know and many others I think it's also like my my background has been in independent film and so like my first movie that Elijah shot was like a $21,000 micro budget indie and then even the television show I made Everything Sucks it was Netflix's lowest budget show that they've ever attempted and so once I had like a teeny bit of a budget here, which it wasn't a big budget movie by any stretch, but once I had the ability to like get my hands on those tools, I was like, okay, I'm using this. Like this may be the last film I ever direct. So I better like put everything I got into this film and just try to make, honestly, just try to make the funnest decisions I can make within the parameters of our schedule. And so I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that you noticed that stuff. That low angle shot of Sydney is a perfect example of a, a shot that exists because the ground was covered in snow and I needed to point the camera up away from the snow and then st- and then we digitally removed it from all of the windows. Wow. I, I didn't mention also Justice Smith is wonderful in it and it's wonderful how you have this couple, Justice Smith and Sydney Sweeney's characters are sort of doing a running commentary on what they're seeing at first, which is quite fun and sort of, sort of undercuts the over-seriousness of it all. Yeah, their chemistry is their chemistry was just something that was it was just such a gift to show up and the two of them just hit it off so well. And so was it improvised? A lot of that, was a lot of that improvised some, or some of it was. Some of it was. We um, you know, we had a we had a script and I needed to keep it keep it tight. But it was a similar thing where I just wanted to kind of stay out of the way. Like there was some alchemy happening between the two of them that was better than what was on the page. And so rather than being resistant to it, I just wanted to lean into it. And it created a movie that I think is a lot funnier than any of us anticipated it being. 
and if you want to know a little secret, so Sydney's character's named Pippa, Justice's character's named Thomas. And so if you put them together, it's a play on words. It's a play on the phrase peeping Tom. Of course, the great Michael Powell. <laughs> dorky, dorky nod no, to Michael no. Powell, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, thanks very much for speaking to me and spending so much time with me on the film. It's really fun when a film like this comes along. I hope your audience loves it. Okay. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. Michael Mohan, writer-director of the glossy and slightly silly erotic thriller The Voyeurs, which I highly recommend. It's currently streaming and screaming over at Amazon Prime Video. I'm Jason DeRosso. This is The Screen Show on ABC Radio National. Another twisted love story is out this week in cinemas where they're open, and it's called The Killing of Two Lovers, a raw, tender, disturbing portrait of a man who can't accept his wife wants to move on and leave him. The film is set in the tiny, sparse hamlet of Kanoche, Utah, surrounded by mountains, and it is, broadly speaking, an examination of male anger and vulnerability. Co-producer and lead actor Clayne Crawford plays David, a man whose wife has asked for a trial separation because she's already seeing someone else. He has an unkempt beard, greasy, slicked-back hair, and emanates a dishevelled urgency like a doomsday prepper rummaging around a hardware store with a to-do list, who's also just a hair's breadth away from bawling his eyes out. He's reeling from the breakdown of his marriage, and he can't accept that his wife, his high school sweetheart, with whom he has four children, has not only fallen in love with another man, but is also embarking on a career in law. Her horizons are broadening day by day. Now, this is dangerous territory for a filmmaker. The movie begins with David standing over the bed of his wife and her lover as they sleep, holding a gun, which sets the tone of violence and creepy stalker obsession from the get-go. Writer-director Robert Machoyan, a former photographer who came of age in the Californian punk scene, knows that he can't excuse selfish and psychotically aggressive behaviour. His film's portrayal of David's sadness invites empathy, but it never excuses his selfishness. It's quite a juggling act, though, and it does benefit from a savvy performance by Sepeda Moafi, who you'll recognise from The L Word and The Juice, as Nikki, the ex-wife, who still feels great tenderness towards David. And then there's Chris Choi as Derek, the other guy, tall, handsome, confident, and perhaps a bit of a jerk. I'll mention finally there's also a teenage daughter, played by an angsty Avery Putsuto, who brings another dimension to the film and a different perspective on her parents' behaviour, which I think is invaluable. The film formally is very well done. It relies on long takes that give you a sense of both the sparse distances of the landscape, but also the interconnectedness of this community. David lives just a quick walk or a manic run from where his wife and her lover are at. How the film resolves this messy, precarious tension is unsettling, but not quite what you may expect, and it will leave you with troubling questions about complex adult lives and choices, or lack thereof. A clip from The Killing of Two Lovers, and then you'll hear from director Robert Machoyan. I know it's not easy. Mom's cheating on you. No, 
she's not. Yes, she is. I saw the guy leaving this morning. Jess, we agreed that we could see other people during this time. Oh, so you're just seeing other people it, too? Um, it doesn't matter. What, you're, it's none of your business what we're doing. It wasn't supposed to be any of your business. None of my business? This is my family too. But Jess, you're the kid. We're the parents. We've got to have time to figure this out. That's stupid. It's not stupid. Look, there's nothing I can say to you that's not going to make me out to be a loser dad. Don't okay? You're right. Okay? But I'm not going to make your mom out to be the villain in this thing. She's not a bad person. But I'm not going to make your mom out to be the villain in this thing. She's not a bad person. Robert Matroyan, welcome to The Screen Show. <laughs> Thanks. Happy to be here. Tell me about this very, very raw set of emotions that you're conjuring here with this particularly bold style, I think. And, and I'm referring especially to the way you stage some scenes in one long shot. Tell me about that match of theme and form. Yeah, I mean... I was interested in kind of writing a relationship or, you know, a drama of a marriage, but I, in the shooting of it, or as I began to block out the shots and think about how they would come together, I, I began to run into a lot of trouble with the idea of choosing to spend time with one over the other, you know, how do you pick a reaction shot in the relationship? And so the choice very early on was to shoot them in single long takes so that the audience was actually forced to be with Nikki and with David as opposed to be with one or the other based off of choices because it was it was hard for me to figure out you know some of the things that David said am I why am I looking at Nikki's reaction like his reaction is as important as her reaction to those things so very quickly on Oscar and I knew that we wanted to frame these in kind of longer takes and then the opportunity to work with such great actors when we began to suggest this idea every single one of them was very excited by it. So that's also very important is understanding that the style uh, uh, that actors are used to. I have worked with actors in the past that are used to maybe 15, 20 second, you know, shots and kind of blocking a whole scene out that way. But Chris and Seppi and Klain were all excited to do these longer performances. But I mean, when you say the actors were excited to do these longer performances, they're not just seasoned actors that you've got in frame here you've got a lot of you've got a bunch of kids in this family situation that's you know the two parents are separating the living separately but down the road from each other there's a lover involved you know, you've got a bunch of kids you've got shared custody that's problematic you got pickup trucks and utes and it's it reminds me a lot of places you'd see in australia on screen you know it's vast expanses it's a small town somewhere and people are moving and they're getting in cars and out of cars. And sometimes you've got a camera just on the side of a car and you've got kids piling into the, this pickup truck, actually. And away we go. And that's the whole scene. Now, how do you direct kids when, you know, you're not cutting away? Their performance has to be consistent. Yeah. I mean, some of the benefit of the specific kids are just the three younger ones are mine. And so... We have we had made a film prior called The Miners, and I normally sit as long as I can on takes just aesthetically. I really enjoy that. And so they were so used to living in the moment and they knew script wise, though, obviously there's dialogue and they know that there's dialogue that they, they need to hit. They also know the intention of the scene and the listening 
to one another is more critical than hitting specific dialogue. So if if a scene goes in a direction and maybe a, a bit of dialogue isn't necessarily to be said, they're aware that they can drop it and then just continue to live in that kind of moment. You're probably selling yourself slightly short. In Stylistically, you also flip to a more conventional shot, reverse shot kind of scene in at night, at, on date night between this couple. And that actually works wonderfully well. I was watching that thinking, oh, you're mixing it up here. Here's actually two close-ups and you're cutting between them. I don't even think there's much of a two-shot in the way that you cover this very extended dialogue. And it's a very tender moment between this couple who otherwise are involved in quite a, um, an embittered sort of trial separation. Tell me about that decision there to go, you know what, I'm going to suddenly do shot reverse shot. Yeah, I mean, in that context, it felt very, very appropriate, even in the writing of it, to be honest, um, because they're in completely separate worlds, even though they're in this kind of crammed truck together. And the objective of each of the characters is very kind of different. So I knew I wanted to be as tight as I could be. I mean, literally we were, we pushed the camera as close to the window as possible. And so what I had talked to Clayne and Seppi about was what's critical about this scene of these two characters is not necessarily how they're, you know, the performance on the dialogue, but actually the reaction to each uh, of what each other are saying. And that the, that's why, it, for me, it was so very critical, right? You have uh, Nikki as this paralegal at a law firm who is already showing so much promise that her boss is encouraging her to consider law school. And the impact of that decision would greatly impact David, right? There's no law school in a town of 300. And, and in Kanash specifically, and not that, you know, that everyone knows about Kanash or the region, but the only town to ever to have a law school is two hours away. Yeah, where is this region? Uh, so Kanash, Utah is, is in central Utah. And it really, really is like the next biggest town was about 1100. And that was 20 minutes away. And like the biggest town to that where, where most people did their grocery shopping was an hour away. Yeah. I mean, this this moment you're, that you're describing as well, I, I should maybe fill in some details for people listening. This is a moment between the separating couple where she is basically, I mean, throughout the film, this is the theme. She is looking like she's blossoming professionally and personally with this new lover, but also with the new prospects, with further study and all of that. He is stuck. He doesn't want to leave the relationship. He doesn't want to let her go. He loves the kids. He wants to be that family again. And this is that moment that you're describing in the scene in the pickup truck on a kind of date night, where, by the way, you've got a tender moment, which I won't reveal, but it's sort of they bond for a brief moment. And you see, I guess, what held them together, that a bit of that glue still sticks. Yeah, I, I think it was really critical. We, we, we got such little time with with Nikki that it, for me, it was really important to understand her and and how you know how layered she was as a person exactly like you you just kind of said she she is blossoming and and it's an interesting for me that was the aspect in the writing that was very important to me what happens when a when a couple starts to grow differently you know and and not necessarily that 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 one is better than the other you know david structured his life to arrive exactly where it was he to live in a town to be able to have a job that allows him to carve out time for his children whenever is necessary. And Nikki has made some sacrifices early on to be able to have her children. And now as a result is like 
just beginning to learn about themselves. This might be something that someone else might have done in their early 20s. You know, they might have spent this time growing and learning about themselves, but now she's in her mid 30s learning how much potential and talent and skills she has and she has to make decisions based off that. Well, look, let's dive into the the really thorny thematics. Is that even a way to describe it perhaps? Because I think what what's so interesting about this film and the fact that it arrives now in a time when we've had this sort of flourishing of criticism about masculinity and what you know the way men are sort of conditioned and educated to be in our societies you come out with this film which is so confronting in a way because there is violence hovering in this film but we don't see it for a long time and it, when it erupts i don't think it's fair to say it comes from where you expect or how you expect it it's a film about vulnerability a very vulnerable very fragile man who's very very angry now let, let me just start with this question where you at all worried or conscious about this film not being read as a kind of apology for bad behavior on the part of men. Yeah, yeah. I, I was worried it was going to be viewed in that light. And Clayton and I had a lot of discussions about that, about he, that he, concern. He's the actor who plays the, the separated husband. Yeah. And he's also yeah, your producer. He, yeah. Clayton and I kind of, we are aware of that concern and we had kind of discussed it, but we thought it was a, there was a richer discussion here. I mean, the hope was to have a richer discussion than kind of a one-dimensional discussion uh, about it. And and I, I think it's really important personally to kind of look at these things to and, and to look at the complicated elements of that. So in the context of the film, yeah, I mean, the, the gun plays a role in the film. And, and for me, that was very much a, a symbol of, the toxic aspects of masculinity, which are very, very important, I think, to discuss and to see, especially in this film, anytime it, it, it kind of rears its ugly head, you know, it's so very inappropriate and you know, it's so very dangerous. And those are aspects that, I mean, that is what toxic masculinity is, which is this very dangerous thing. But masculinity as a whole has some, some other elements that I don't think are necessarily toxic, right? You're watching David, trying to kind of figure out how to to keep this all together you know he seems like a good dad yes he he owns this gun and he pulls it out on occasion and you you worry for where this is going i mean mainly i think what's fascinating about his character and he's wonderfully played by clayne crawford who as i as i said is both lead actor and one of your producers he is this really volatile mix of ex of extreme sort of um extremely wounded ego i suppose yeah and a deep sense of not wanting to change and wanting to you know and a sense of being wronged and um and so that is just so volatile in his hands but you kind of you extend that tension out throughout the whole film without necessarily resolving it until the very end and even the end is you know leaves you with questions i think yeah for me i growing up in a small town which i thought you know which i had a really wonderful experience but you it's it's a really interesting thing how you learn you know you learn aspects of what it is to be a man and then you learn the things that you know you know and and in the the region of utah what was so what i was so drawn to um, moving there i'm initially from california and so when i moved there of course i started to be impacted by these men who were very, you know, many of the people in Kanash, men in Kanash specifically, 
are preppers. They're very like self-reliant individuals as a result of living where they are. You know, one of the guys said to me as I was kind of meeting people in the town, you know, I could strip naked right now and walk into the, in the woods and survive for a year, <laughs> you know? And so you're like, well, I don't need you to get naked, but uh, that's very interesting, <laughs> you know? But, but in, in that, in, in that same conversation, you begin to talk about their children, you know, how many children do you have? What are your children doing? And they will openly weep about their children. And that conflict to me was so interesting, you know, how this duality where, where they are, are, are taught and raised to be very tough, but it, as it relates to family and the same with their wives, you know, they, they're openly vulnerable. And so in the writing of this, I really wanted to, I was, I was so taken by that vulnerability and that toughness and was like, I've got to write about this character. It's not, not often, you know, you don't see, uh, you know, the rock Johnson being a superhero and then weeping, you know, over his children. Like, I don't know if you see any superheroes do that. We haven't spoken about the figure of the lover here, who is the new man in Nikki's life. And he's a wonderful character too, because it's really, this is a film without villains. Yeah. Given everything we've said, people might suspect there's a villain here or there's a lesson to be learnt. And it's really not that simple, which is why I like it. And it's without villains and people you think may be kind of good, do some, you know, weird stuff. I mean, this is this, <laughs> and you know, violence happens in in that terrible way where it really does come a little bit out of the blue. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was important not to have any villains. It was important to understand the motivations of, of each character, and to be able to like lean into that. You know, again, in this context, Nikki is growing, and she's asking for space to grow, as opposed to just maybe leaving or maybe having an, you know, an affair in this context, she was very open with Dar- with David about what she, her needs were. And a result of that, we, we were introduced to Derek who rightly so is, is falling madly in love with her. Right. And so he, in many ways you have two, these two male characters trying to figure out how to hold on to the thing that they're, you know, one who's loved for many years and one who's falling deeply in love. Um, and like, how each is trying to kind of get the thing that they're um, that they want in life. And as a result, you get a collision, you know, it's like a four way stop with no stop sign. And, and what you have is, you know, three, three individuals who don't know who has the right of way. Sounds like someone's doing a bit of Kenosh style um, prepper um, handiwork around the, around the place there where you are. Someone's with a drill sorry. building a bunker in the yeah, background. Sorry about that. That's cool. It's not very loud. I'm talking to filmmaker Robert Machoyan about his film, a wonderful uh, drama that is just so moving in, in so many ways and very intelligently uh, staged. It's called The Killing of Two Lovers. I wanted to ask about just the conditions in which you made it. I hope you take this the right way, but it's a very sort of handmade feeling film. It's kind of one of those films that feels like an early film in some 70s director's, you know, oeuvre. There's that wonderful early, I think it's a tracking shot, but it may be Steadicam, I'm not sure. But when he's running out of the house he lives in, this is, uh, you know, your main man, David, and he's 
walking down the street, eventually sort of running down the street and he's in a bit of a state, but that's all done with some kind of diagonal tracking shot. And there's a little bump in it, which I don't want you to take this the wrong way. I like the bump. I love it when you can just kind of see that it's a tracking shot. There's someone behind that camera, you know, there's a crew working. Tell me about your setup and, and, and the crew. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, I appreciate the seventies reference. Cause I, I love the raw element of that era. And that was definitely what I looked at, uh, Barbara Loden's Wanda was a big influence on me just because, you know, that film does feel very raw and very handmade, but you know, she had these, she could have anyways pushed to have these other resources with, you know, with, with her husband and the access that she had, but made this very raw, rigid film. And, and I wanted the killing of two lovers to kind of have that element to it. And then there was the practicality of it. So the shot you're referencing, for example, uh, so in the in Kenosha at the time that we were shooting, it was between five and ten degrees, um, so it was very very cold. Anyways, and the re- reason why I bring that up is we had a golf cart, and that was going to be our planned kind of tracking tool, and so we did one or two takes, and because of the cold air, the back tire just blew out because it because it had frozen so much, and so the take that ended up in the movie because we we were working out kind of all the practicalities there's a broken tire. So I'm pushing the golf cart while the cinematographer and the driver are driving this thing kind of forward. And you get this kind of bumpy aspect of it. And and there's an aspect of that, that in the end, I really, really loved because he's with the sound design and so forth. It's like he is unraveling and you get this wonderful opportunity to kind of see the unraveling occur via the camera. And I often look for those kind of happy accidents in the process. I, I think allowing kind of the process of filmmaking to play a role in how you're telling stories is critical. Just a final um, question, as we've we've been having a few interesting background sound effects during this interview, I think it's appropriate to maybe ask you about the sound because you've got this growling, menacing soundtrack here that's very much like, um, it is sort of, it's not prepared piano because I don't think there's a piano in it, or maybe I'm wrong, but anyway, it is that kind of, um, what is the term? Yeah, yeah. It's a period of music called music concrete, which is using, you know, other sounds or or what I say is sounds of the world to kind of build composition and tone and mood. And I had talked with Peter Albrechtian very early on in, in this process about and it was sending him, you know, composers who I really loved and admired to help him kind of understand or begin to get the feeling for the mood of the film. And then I explained to him that I wanted to was going to shoot it in a way that re, kind of required not only him to be involved, but this us as an audience to understand the internal aspect of David without without arriving at a dialogue scene that just kind of conveyed it through, you know, through writing. And where do you go now in your career? I mean, you've made a bunch of films so far. You're, you're working at this sort of lower budget level. I often wonder if... Well, the filmmakers just get tired and, you know, they, they just, you know, end up for various reasons looking for that paycheck and, and becoming the gun for hire in Hollywood and just and, and from then on just enjoying that comfort, really, because it's so hard to make films. And, yeah, you know, you're going you're gonna to direct a Marvel film anytime soon. <laughs> no, I hope I never do. You know, I have children of my own, so I, I, keep, uh, I keep saying I, I pray often. Do that- it for them. Do it for them, Robert. 
Yeah, no, no, that's, that's my, I'm like, my, I'm always hoping that, that, you know, the offer never comes because when you have children, you're not really in a position to say no to th- certain things. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I've chosen to, uh, one of the reasons why I, I went into teaching, I mean, I loved uh, teaching as, as a, a career, but one of the reasons was to be able to have the latitude as a, as a filmmaker to not have to eventually take the paycheck to be able to kind of tell stories. And one of the great thing about academia is the, the value of it from a filmmaking standpoint is to push the medium and to try and find new ways to tell stories or a new language um, or to push a language that's already been established even further. And so my hope is to kind of continue to do that. But then there's this other hope that I have, you know, I don't always want to work in small budgets, but my, my hope in films like Killing Two Lovers is to establish a consistency that a studio might be like, I see what you're doing and we can kind of get behind that because Killing of Two Lovers did really well. You know, that's also the hope is when you're dealing with investors, I, I have no issue with understanding how nervous they are to invest. Cinema is not like like smart investment in many ways, but if I can build, you know, a reputation and a, a library of films that have been successful Hopefully they'll be willing to take the risk and actors will be ta- willing to take the risk. You know, I think of the Greek director kind of Yurgos. Um, Vantamos. And, you yeah. Know, yeah. And, you know, the favorite. And, and, and you look at Dogtooth and how brilliant of a movie that was. Um, but it established a, an ability to kind of I'm going to tell these stories that are not traditional, but slowly they become more successful. And, and I think his roadmap is one that I, I obviously dream of getting that opportunity in my life to be able to tell stories in a unique way, but then be able to have the access he has. Well, Robert, look, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. And uh, so th- thank you very much. And I, I hope people go and see your film here. That'd be, but uh, yeah. yeah, thanks, man. All the best. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. Robert Machoyan, writer-director of the impressive, disturbing The Killing of Two Lovers in cinemas now. And if the themes discussed in that interview have raised issues for you, crisis support is available on 131114, 131114. And the Family Violence and Sexual Assault Hotline is 1800RESPECT. I'm Jason DeRosso. This has been The Screen Show. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.